You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Great to be with you guys. Thank you so much. Joe, thank you. I'm so grateful for your love, your friendship, your ministry. And what a joy to be with you guys on this side of the planet. Uh, Joe's invitation did allow me to escape all of the traffic uh, tie-ups now with the president in Israel. And uh, so I'm kind of happy about that. And it's always good to be back. You know, so we are now dual U.S. Israeli citizens, okay? So that, yeah, so... <laughs> So that means we get to vote twice. (laughs) You know, I had been teaching about, obviously writing, but also teaching and speaking about Bible prophecy for, you know, a long time. And uh, including the fact that Israel, the fact that the state of Israel exists, and now 69 years since its prophetic rebirth, uh, it's, it's easy for us to forget Maybe not you all, but, but, the, but generally the Christian world, the world even more broadly, to forget that the fact that the state of Israel exists, that it's in the news, that the President of the United States is there right now, is itself the fulfillment of end times Bible prophecy. But that's just so normal in our lives today, especially as believers, that it, you know, it didn't exist for 1900 years. It has not been a sovereign nation for more than 2,000 years years, and it is today. And and that is extraordinary. And to see the ancient ruins being rebuilt, right? The the prophets told us that would happen. Now, in Israel, people say that the national bird of Israel is the crane because of the, you know, because they're building so much. It's really quite extraordinary to see that, you know, the, the, the ingathering of the Jewish people from all over the planet. There are Israel is now the, cent, the, the number one most, you know, it's the location for the most number of Jews in the world. The United States is now number two. So there are six and a half million Jews in Israel, about five plus million here in the United States. So we expect uh, our American Jewish friends to be coming inbounds, which will also create more traffic problems. And, um, and, uh, we need a lot more apartments, and there'll be a lot of challenges uh, to welcome in because there are 14.5 million Jews in the world, and 6.5 million of them live in Israel. But, you know, that is an extraordinary growth over the last 100 years or so. 100 years ago, 70 years ago, you could have asked most Christian leaders, most pastors, most seminary professors almost for certain— Will Israel ever become a country once again? And most of them would have said no. And yet there it is. And, and it's the, you know, it is once again, as of today, yet again, the epicenter of the momentous events that are shaking our world and shaping our future. The eyes of the nations are on Israel. And so if those, all those prophecies related to the rebirth of the state of Israel, the nation state, the geopolitical state of Israel in the end times, in the days before Christ returns. If that has come true in our lifetime and Jews are continuing to stream in and rebuild the ancient ruins and making the deserts bloom, then what else 
does the Bible say will happen, will in fact come to pass? That's a great question to ask, uh, not only the pagan world, uh, but also much of the church. Because most of the church, I'm not sure if you realize that, because you come from a a wonderful heritage of people who believe in the whole counsel of God, that it's all true, that the prophecies are real, and they are, you know, and the, and the half of them that have not yet come true will come true. But not everybody believes that. Most of the church in the world does not believe that the prophecies related to Israel are, are true, are, are, are literal. They think it, they're, they're metaphoric, they're symbolic, and they relate only to the church. And they do not relate to the physical rebirth of Israel and the ingathering of the Jewish people. So we've got a lot of work to do to help just the Christian world understand, much less the rest of the world understand, that God's word is true from beginning to end. And because so much of it has not only come true in the past, but is coming true now, it is incumbent upon us to understand what's coming next. What are the things that are coming that God did not want us to be ignorant of? Now, for me and my family, it's been uh, amazing, exciting, but also extraordinarily challenging to be suddenly stepping into the story. Like, I've been traveling all over the world and teaching about these things and writing books about that, that, are, that weave in prophetic themes and so forth. But Honestly, I, I can't tell you that I grew up or spent much of my adult life ever thinking I would actually become a citizen of Israel. My wife and I don't remember having a single conversation for most of our married life about making Aliyah, the process of emigrating to Israel. Serving there? Absolutely. Visiting there? Yes. Taking tours, host, hosting conferences, even starting a ministry, the Joshua Fund? Yes, yes. That's all. We were all excited about that. But actually emigrating? Becoming citizens, it, it, it never dawned on us that God would ask us to step into the story and become part of that return of the Jewish people. Now you say, well, why not? Well, we don't have as much time, enough time to go through that whole story. But I didn't think as a believer that, I, that it was legal for me to return. Meaning, uh, you know, my, my father was born and raised Orthodox Jewish. My mom's a Gentile. So uh, under what's known by the rabbis as halakhic law, religious Jewish law, I'm not actually technically Jewish because my mother isn't Jewish. Now you say to yourself, you're all good Bible scholars. Like, I don't know. Wait a minute. Isn't it Abraham, Isaac, Jacob? Isn't it patriarchal? Yes, it is. But when, you know, there's a lot of things that rabbis get exactly opposite, right? So we, you know, with all due respect that we shouldn't, expect that they get everything right. They, they've missed the Messiah. There's going to be a few other things that they're going to not see. Okay? So, we've got to show compassion and love. But we don't, you know, but anyway, that's the law. If you're Jewish on your mother's side, you're Jewish under halakhic law. Even if you don't believe in God, even if you're a Jew-boo, that's a Jewish Buddhist, um, even if you have a Swami, a guru in India, whatever, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as your mother's Jewish. Unless, unless you believe in Jesus. Then, if your mother's Jewish and you believe in Jesus, then you have converted away from the faith and thus are no longer eligible for the right of return, the right to come back and settle in Israel as a citizen of Israel. However... <laughs> 
There's a great expression in Hebrew. It's, you say aval. Aval means however or but. I, I, I tell you, my wife and I, if we ever write a, a memoir of our, our experience of moving to Israel and becoming citizens of Israel, it, the title will be aval. Because whatever you've been told, it'll say, oh, it's going to be oh, no problem. It'll be like this, aval. And then it, there's like 19 other permutations that you didn't even ever know when I mentioned to you. So you, if you're Jewish on my other side and you believe in Jesus, you can't become a citizen. Aval. If your father's Jewish and your mother is provably not, then you're not really Jewish under Halakhic law. Aval. You are Jewish enough to have been killed by Hitler. Well, fortunately, we're in the age where you could laugh about that. But okay, the point is, if your mother's not Jewish and you can prove it, and your father is, and you can prove it, and you believe in Jesus, then you were not halakhically Jewish, but you're Jewish enough to qualify under a different portion of the law, and we will welcome you in. It doesn't matter what you believe. Well, that's good because I thought, you know, I mean, I'm fairly Googleable on the topic of whether Jewish people need Jesus to get to heaven, right? So I didn't think I was going to get in. <laughs> but we filled out our paperwork and went through the process. Two months later, boom, we had our citizenship. So who knows? Um, God has a way when he wants you someplace. Thank you. There's one person who's happy I'm over there. I, I, you know, I, no, that's fine. I, <laughs> so... If God wants you someplace, he, he will make a way, right? By the way, I, I, I often talk about how, you know, you know that the, the national anthem of Israel is Hatikva, meaning the hope. And it's actually a, quite a mournful song, but it's a, the hope for 2,000 years, the, the longing of the Jewish soul to, to return to, to the land of Zion, uh, to, to Jerusalem. That's, that's our national anthem. What's interesting is I, I actually think the national anthem of the state of Israel should be the, the old country western song, looking for love in all the wrong places. Okay, and I want to talk a little bit about that uh, today, uh, how our team is looking for love and looking for hope, looking for a spiritual uh, fulfillment to our souls. We're looking in all the wrong places. Now, one of the questions is, how is the church going to come alongside uh, the nation of Israel, both Jews, Muslims, others, and help us find our hope, our true hope. But I want to structure this, uh, this message um, around Ezekiel 33. And, I, and I'm, I, if you'll forgive me, I'm not going to really go a verse-by-verse verse, uh, exposition uh, this afternoon. But I want to read the passage because I want it to frame some of the things we're talking about. You're going to do some great Bible study over the next couple of days, and, I, and I'm excited about that. But I wanted, to, based on what Joe had asked me to do, talking about the importance of Bible prophecy and sort of putting the context of what's going on in the region um, in the context of Bible prophecy and why that's important to study and teach, I, I want us to begin in Ezekiel 33. And we're going to just read through this passage uh, the first nine verses. I'm reading in the New American Standard Bible. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the sons of your people, and say to them, If I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take one man from among them, 
and make him their watchman. And he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows on the trumpet and warns the people. Then he who hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning and a sword comes and takes him away, his blood will be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood will be on himself, but had he taken warning, then he would have delivered his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a sword comes and takes a person from them, then he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. Now, as for you, son of man, I have appointed you a watchman for the house of Israel. So you will hear a message from my mouth and give them a warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if on your part you warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity. But you have delivered your life. Now those are very sobering words, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to Ezekiel 2,500 years ago. He's speaking through Ezekiel um, to the nation of Israel, to the nations, and, and to us as the church uh, all this time later. And the, and the message is very simple. You've studied it. You've taught it. But let's just recap the, the high points, right? In the old days, uh, national security was done by, uh, you'd have a city that had a wall around it. This is a big favorite passage of Trump. Okay. So you had a wall. And you had a guy on top of the wall, or, or many guys sometimes, and they're watching out over the, the, the plains, over the forest, wherever, the, you know, wherever that city is located, right? And they operate as the national security agency. The, you know, they didn't have drones. They didn't have satellites. They didn't have, uh, you know, long-range radars, right? They had a guy up on a wall looking out. And if he saw bandits coming, if he saw marauders, if he saw a, an army coming, if he saw some sort of threat, a judgment even, coming. But this is specifically talking about national security at first. If you see a, a threat coming, then his job, he couldn't stop that threat as one guy on a wall. His job was to warn the others. So they could get ready. They could get prepared. The women and children could get to safety. The men could take up arms and be ready to defend the city. And anyone who wasn't right spiritually better get themselves right uh, in the time that they had. That's, that was the way security for a city, a city-state at that time was done. Now, God is making the analogy that Ezekiel is that watchman, right? Just as we do national security, so Ezekiel, you are chosen to be set apart to watch, to see what's happening in the world, to see trends, to see dangers, 
to the, the house of Israel. That's the specific context. To listen to the Lord. And the Lord says, hey, a danger is coming. A threat is coming. A judgment is coming to an individual or to the city or to the nation. Then your job is to hear from me, see the threat, understand it, and, and warn people. If you do and they repent, wonderful. If you do and they don't repent, that's bad for them, but good for you. At least you have been faithful in your part. But if you hear a judgment from God is coming, if you see a threat coming to an individual or to a, uh, to a nation and you don't warn them, that threat will materialize. That person or those people or that nation will die in their iniquity. They will die unforgiven and go to hell, but you will be held to account. Now, we understand this passage of the watchman on the wall from the context of the New Testament that allows us to understand that we all, but especially you as pastors, as shepherds, you particularly have, but we have the responsibility as we, to, to understand the word of God, the whole council. Not to cherry pick, but to understand it from Genesis to Revelation to teach the whole counsel of God, including the 26-27% that is prophecy, because that's something important that God said, I, I want you to understand this so that when these things come, you will not be surprised that you will be warning people ahead of time, these judgments are coming, these terrors, these troubles, these trials, they're coming. So get ready and be prepared. And if you do that faithfully, wonderful. You're not responsible for the results. You're responsible for the proclamation, for the warning, and for helping people to know how would they get to safety? How would they get their iniquities forgiven? Right? That's our responsibility. But if we don't do it, then those judgments will come. Those trials and tribulations will come. And people will die in their iniquity. They will not be able to blame us, but... We will be held to account. Which brings me to the first point I want to make to you all this afternoon. I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your faithfulness in teaching the whole counsel of God, including Bible prophecy, for not ducking and dodging and weaving around the one in four passages. In scripture that are about what's coming. Now, half of those are already been, have already been fulfilled. But if we don't teach those that God has said certain things will happen and then they happen, it's hard for people to believe that the other things that God says will happen will happen. And then if we don't teach people what will happen, how will they know exactly? Now, to, to, to not teach 27% of scripture is a dereliction of duty. If you have a 16-year-old daughter or son and you don't teach her or him 26% of what he or she needs to know to drive a car safely, that's, that's bad. You are not doing that person, your own son or daughter, any favors. right? You're imperiling them and everyone around them. If you run a medical school and you teach your students 26 27% less of what they need to know to save lives... That's bad. You're, you're, you're imperiling them. They can't do what they've been, they're supposed to be trained to do 
effectively because you've created a huge gap in their knowledge base. And this is true of so much of the church. So much of the church is just ignoring it, ignoring Scripture, ignoring major passages. And and for a lot of reasons, there are pastors all over the world who just don't believe these things. So why would they teach them? There are people who don't understand all these passages. They haven't studied it carefully on their own. They haven't been taught it. So they just think, I'll skip it. Or, and this is maybe the most plausible, most you know, acceptable version of why people wouldn't teach it. They're afraid of teaching it wrong. They're afraid of teaching it badly, so they just skip it. That's understandable, but, you know, but that's not really... But that doesn't fit with being a watchman. It doesn't fit with Paul being able to say to the church in Ephesus, Look, I, I, you, you know, I didn't, I didn't skip stuff. I'm paraphrasing, right? But you know this stuff. I, I can tell you, I, I, I'm able to say with, with a clear conscience, I taught you everything there was to know. Whether you got it all, that's a different thing. But my job was to teach it to you. And the Holy Spirit will help bring it to remembrance. So that's important. And so much of the church isn't doing it. Now, there's only, there are other numbers of pastors all over the United States, all over the world, they have seen prophecy taught badly, sensationalistically. You know, you know the websites where, you know, it, it's black and red and there's fire and every sentence is in capital letters with 92 exclamation points. And you're like, hey, hey, have some decaf. Really, just, ooh, chill. It's going to be okay. Did you read the end of the book? You, have, you know, I mean, come on. So people don't want to be identified with that. Right? People don't want to be identified with the prophecy nuts. And I understand that. I don't want to be identified. In fact, when I got, when I, you know, you know me, I'm a, I'm a failed political consultant, right? I mean, that was what I did for 10 years of my life is help people lose. And to the, to the point, my friends then, and even now, they, they keep trying to get me to work for campaigns they, that are against the ones they want to win, Right? I don't know if it, I, you know, I, I have helped so many people lose. Anyway, I don't want to get off on that, but I will say that I, in case this matters to you, just for, just for the record, I, I, I met with and spent time with almost every single Republican preparing, running except Trump. So I, I can't explain these things. I'm just telling you, you know, hashtag whatever. I'm just, uh, so look, when, when, when I was, when God was asking me to make a pivot and leave politics, I was like, okay, yeah, that seems like an obvious thing. Who's going to keep hiring me, right? Uh, they're, gonna, they're on to me now. But uh, how... So then he, the Lord wanted me to start writing novels with the gospel woven into them, sort of Tom Clancy-esque political thrillers with the gospel woven right in. So I thought, all right, I don't know how to do that, but that would be fun. I, I didn't know how to do politics. I wasn't any good at it, but I'll try this. This, is, this sounds fun. But then he asked me to write a series about the, uh, the Gog and Magog prophecies. I'm like, Lord, um, excuse me. No, that, that's not a good idea. I, I don't want to write political thrillers with, about prophecy. Okay, Other people do that, and they do that well. I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a nut. I don't want to be categorized in my Washington political world as a lunatic. And... Uh, so I understand that feeling of not wanting to 
study or teach these things because you don't want to get lumped in with the nuts because there are so many of them out there. But look, there are people who are heretics when it comes to the gospel, right? And we don't say, well, I'm not going to teach the gospel. I'm not going to preach the gospel because there are, there are lunatics out there. There are heretics. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. I, 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 don't want to be, I don't want people to misunderstand what I believe. No. No, we, we totally say, well, we need to preach the gospel more clearly. We need to make sure it's, it's saturated in the word of God, that people understand what it means, that, that what, what good news means, what repentance means. We have to help them understand the urgency that when you breathe your last breath on this earth, you lock in your eternal fate. It's either in or out. Which are you? We don't back away because there are people that are teaching it badly on television or wherever. But, but, but many people are backing away from prophecy. So I want to thank you for being faithful and continuing to teach the whole counsel of God and to encourage you to keep with that, especially now. As Joe mentions, now is the time as we go deeper, deeper into these end times. As Israel is reborn as a country, those prophecies have come true. Check, 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 check. We're getting... We're seeing more and more preparing, more and more prophecies preparing to come to pass. Second, I want to remind you of a truth you already know, but which we, all, we can always benefit from a refresher. So the first thing is I want to say thank you, but the second thing is I want to remind you of this truth, that how we teach the Word, and particularly Bible prophecy, is as important as what we teach. How we teach something, the Word of God, Bible prophecy, biblical eschatology, is, import, is as important as what we teach. Ministry, as you know, it's not just about content. It's about communications. It's not just about truth. It's about tone. It's not just about the Word. It's about our witness. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean what Jesus meant in John chapter 12, verse 49, when he said, The Father commands me what to say and how to say it. Now that's a communicator's life verse right there. John 12, 49. I'm, that, I'm citing it from the NIV. That's how I learned it. The Father commands me what to say and how to say it. It's not only the content. It's not only what we say. It's the tone, it's the language, it's, the, it's, how we, it's how we phrase it in a way that pleases the Lord. And let me give you a specific example of that and why I say that. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 14, again, a passage you guys know well, about the three purposes of prophecy, right? That, that prophecy is about edification, exhortation, and consolation, right? Edification, exhortation, and consolation. It's supposed to build us up. It's supposed to exhort, to challenge us. It's supposed to console us. When we know that the all-loving, all-seeing, all-knowing God, the all-powerful God, the sovereign God has told us something in advance, this is comforting when the world, when the, when the wheels come off. And the Lord has told us how it's going to play out. We can have confidence. Well, Lord, you knew this would happen. Therefore, I can, it's, it's another evidence that we can trust him. And it challenges us and it builds us up when we see God knowing things in advance. It's amazing. 
But Bible prophecy is not for our destruction, discouragement, and division. And yet that's often how it's taught. That's too often how it's taught in a way that destroys, that tears down, that discourages, that divides. And this is the exact opposite. And it's not just about the truth of God's word. It's about how we teach it, how we communicate it. And now here's another element of that. Yes, God has a plan for Israel. God, you know, has, is, is resurrected the, the geopolitical nation state of Israel. And he has a plan and he has a purpose and he's bringing the Jewish people back. That's true. And I love those truths. But let's also realize that those of us who, who are pro-Israel evangelicals, We need to ask ourselves some questions. Do we also fully embrace God's love and compassion for Palestinians, for Syrians, for Lebanese, for Jordanians, for Iraqis, for Iranians, for Egyptians, for Saudis, for the Emiratis? Do we really believe that? We can focus sometimes like a laser on Israel and be so excited about Israel that we don't even realize that our tone and, 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 what, and the way we say these biblical truths about Israel are, may not be compassionate towards people in our congregations, people in our hearing who are Palestinians, who are Syrians. It's amazing how often I teach... And I will say at some point during the message, you know, God loves the Palestinian people. He loves the Syrians. He loves the Iranian people. He loves the Iraqis. He loves the Jordanians and the Egyptians. He, he loves the Lebanese. He, he really does. And he, his word is full of his love and promises for them. So, yes, God has a great love and plan for Israel. But he also has love and plan for the neighbors. Even for the enemies. Right? We don't want to be Jonah's. We don't want to say, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to tell them how much God loved them because they could repent. No, we don't want to be those kind of people. We're supposed to have learned the lesson from Jonah not to do that, much less run in the other direction. But I'm amazed how often when I say that, how people will come up to me and they're Palestinians and they're, they're Jordanians. And they're Iranians and they're Iraqis and they're, you know, and they, and they, sometimes, they often, actually, they, their, their voices crack. They have tears in their eyes. They've never heard anybody from the pulpit talk about God's love for the neighbors. They've never heard a Jewish person who loves Jesus say how much God loves Palestinians or, or whomever. Those, that, those are easy things to slip and forget because of our love for Israel. That, that's not the whole story. It's a big part of the story. And yes, much of the churches doesn't even understand that part of the story. But we, if we're going to teach the whole counsel of God, we need to teach the whole counsel of God and make sure that when we talk about God's love for Israel, that we not glorify Israel. You know, many evangelicals, not only do they forget about the neighbors and therefore seem insensitive... Now, if you've got a whole congregation full of people who are rah-rah about Israel, it may not immediately bother them. But, that, but our job is to help them understand God's love and heart for those neighbors. Why? Because there's prophecies about them. Isaiah 17, Jeremiah 42 will come true one day. Damascus will cease to be a city. So we need to be helping the people that we are shepherding understand God's heart for the Syrians. 
that, that judgment is coming, and therefore we need to go reach the people of Syria with the gospel because of the watchman on the wall principle. And there's prophecies about, the, about judgment, about Iran, and, and about Jordan, and about Egypt, and all these. But there's also wonderful stories in the scripture, uh, prophecies, that he's going to bless them and reach them and draw them to him. But if we never talk about these things, not only are we not preparing people, we are not being faithful watchmen. And we are or we per, are, can be perceived as being insensitive. If we really believe that God loves Israel's neighbors, then we need to talk about that. We need to say it, and we need to have a game plan for being part of helping reach them. But I want to, say, I want to go back to this one other point. We, it, it, unfortunately, there are too many, I, I can't categorize it by percentage or anything, but there are too many evangelical Christians who love Israel so much that they almost have treated Israel as an idol, they're so excited about Israel. Now, look, I'm excited about Israel, right? I am a citizen of Israel. I've got the card now. I'm literally a card-carrying member of the tribe. And I, you know, we're going to go down with the ship if, you know, the Iranians are going to nuke us. Well, then we're going to be there, right? But my point is we are identifying with our people because God told us to and because we want to reach our people. But have you read this book? This, the, the, the idolatry of Israel among evangelicals is painful. This book is a book filled with our dirty laundry, right? I mean, look, we can be excited and should be that God loves this people in spite of ourselves. Deuteronomy chapter 9, three times God says, listen, I'm giving you a land, but just to be clear, it is not because you're more righteous. He doesn't say it once. He doesn't say it twice. Three times in Deuteronomy 9, he says, it's not because you're more righteous than the others. And then the rest of the book proves it. (laughs) Now, I'm not trying to be extra critical of my team, okay? But I'm just saying, we are looking for love in all the wrong places. We are all lost people, and there are a lot of consequences uh, and characteristics that come with our lostness. So yes, do we want the, the, the church to understand us and love us in spite of us because we, because we have a Jewish Messiah? Absolutely. But let's not wrap ourselves completely in the flag of Israel and think that their Israel can do no wrong. And woo, I mean, it gets a little... It's a little much. And, and, and I think, and I just say that so that we, we keep things in proper perspective. If we're going full-scale Zionist as a church, we run the risk of, of getting outside the lane of the gospel. Right? You are not going to be able to tag on me that I don't believe in the prophecies about Israel. Okay, So I'm not worried about that. That's why I'm saying to you, I'm not worried about you guys loving Israel and understanding these prophecies. So I want you, and then may your tribe increase, to be, to, to be cognizant of the need to pray for and encourage brothers and sisters all over the, throughout the church and around the world to have a healthy biblical perspective of the Jewish people.
and to understand that some of our characteristics of our lostness is what drives the Gentiles, the Arabs, the Muslims crazy. It's not our, I mean, I'm not talking about uh, saying that it's our fault that people want to kill us. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying we need to have love and compassion for the other side. And and this is particularly true about millennials. I believe, I can't prove it statistically or somewhere, but my sense is, I think anecdotally, we have this general sense that millennials in the church are not tracking with our understanding of Bible prophecy, of the Bible generally, Bible prophecy, prophecy in particular, and God's love and plan for Israel in particular. And some of it, some of it is, well, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. But I believe that my, my gut instinct tells me that some of it seems that being pro-Israel seems political to a generation, not biblical. Some of it is that it's out of balance, that it's all Israel. And even though they might not be able to articulate it, millennials think that doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound fair. I'm not talking about getting weird with fairness, but, you know, justice is a biblical word. We've let the left hijack that word. And so if somebody says, we need to be for justice, we're like, ah, that guy's a liberal. Well, it might be, but, you know, how are we supposed to walk again? (laughs) Right? We're supposed to walk with God humbly and do justice and love mercy. And, and, And so... I just think we need to be thinking about um, how we are being heard, not by the choir, but by the millennials who aren't quite sure what they believe. And, aren't, and if it feels unfair, then they may, go, they may instinctively, not necessarily with all kinds of wisdom and knowledge, but they may instinctively go a different direction to be for the underdog. But that... That could, and they can dress it up as theological, but it could be just political. But my point is, God does love underdogs. The Bible is full of caring for widows and orphans and people who've been mistreated. And, you know, the Palestinians have been mistreated by themselves as well as by Israel. Right? They're under horrible leadership. They need to be liberated from, uh, from, from Hamas, by, from Mahmoud Abbas. So... I'm not trying to give you a full, you know, perfect explanation of how this is all supposed to work. But I think that we are supposed to remind ourselves that when we teach the truths of God, particularly in an area of the world of prophecy that's so volatile and so controversial and so divisive, we just have to understand that what we teach is important, but how we teach it is important as well. Which brings me to my third point. Um, in addition to thanking you and, and for teaching the, the whole counsel of God, and, and then, of course, just reminding us about that, 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 that our, that how we teach things are as important as what we teach, I want to invite you to step into the, to the story of biblical eschatology. And, and this is what I mean by this. Yes, I want you, of course, to keep preaching and teaching the return of Christ. I want you to keep teaching and preaching that God does have a great plan for Israel, for national Israel, for the Jewish people. Though we are lost, we will be found. 
We have a Jewish Messiah. He does want us to know him. And the Bible gives one nationality that all of us will get saved eventually. Not in Q&A, we can, talk, we can break that down. Uh, but the Bible does say in Romans eleven twenty six, all Israel will be saved. Now, okay, just to be clear, I don't believe that every single Jewish person on the planet in all history is going to heaven. Only those of us who accept the, the gracious offer of our Messiah, Jesus, for, to forgive all of our sins, only, only those of us who say yes get to go to heaven. But I do believe that the, 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 the final core, cohort of Jewish people that have said no to Jesus and are still alive at the end of the tribulation, just before Jesus comes back, I believe he's going to save every single person who's gone through the entire seven years and said no said no to the angel flying through the air, preaching the gospel, no to the two witnesses in front of the temple, no to the 144,000 Jewish Greg Lorries and Billy Grahams. No, uh, no, 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 I don't believe it. And seconds, moments, before Jesus himself returns to lock in their answer forever, I believe he's going to save that entire group. That's the group of all Israel will get saved that I believe get saved. Because he said it. Not because we deserve it. This will be the ultimate act of grace. The ultimate act of grace. To be moments away from hell, having rejected every possible gospel uh, you know, preach, you know, um, proclamation to you and still get saved. Because you will see it and you will mourn for the one whom we've rejected. That we pierced and we rejected and we didn't get it and we said no and now he's opened our eyes and we are weeping and weeping and weeping because he opened our eyes and showed us mercy anyway. That's all Israel getting saved. Now, why does God give us that promise? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one is for the church to keep sharing the gospel with Jewish people, even when Jewish people don't want to hear it. To keep sharing the gospel with Jewish people even when you're not seeing the same harvest as you would find in Brazil or in China or, or in the Muslim world right now. To stay focused in sharing the gospel faithfully with Jewish people because it's going to work. Because God keeps his promises. So yes, I want to encourage you to keep preaching and teaching these things. At the same time, I want each of us to let solid biblical eschatology drive our response to the Great Commission. That is, let the imminence of judgment of the nations and the second coming of Christ drive, our, drive us to ask the Lord a few questions. One, Lord, what are you asking me and the congregation I shepherd to do to reach every Jew and Gentile in the land of Israel with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So at least they've heard. So at least we can be part of helping all of them, Jew and Gentile, at least hear a clear presentation of the gospel in a language they can understand so they can make a decision, yes or no. What am I and what is my congregation doing to be part of that? Lord, tell me, speak to me, show me. That's number one. Number two... What are you asking me, Lord, me and the congregation that I shepherd? What are you asking us to do to strengthen the church in the epicenter to fulfill the Great Commission? So I'm not just focused on Israel. I'm also focused on what God is doing through his church in the nations, particularly Israel's neighbors 
and, and, her, and her enemies. Now, for Lynn and me, this, this has been a critical journey for us. Uh, because, you know, it's one thing to write these things, to teach these things, to, 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 to write novels about these things. But for us, we realize that, okay, it's one thing to educate, but we also, there's more that needs to be done. It, it, we don't want to be held accountable. If I write a novel, like Damascus Countdown, for example, that one day Damascus is going to be utterly destroyed. We don't know exactly how, but we know it's going to happen. Okay, I can write a novel about that. That's a way of helping people, and particularly the church, think, oh, wow, I hadn't really thought about those passages. Hmm, that's interesting. And to do it in a high-speed, high-octane octane, uh, political thriller. Take them on a journey. Make them think about things they wouldn't have ever thought about. Okay, that's wonderful. But to me, it's not enough. Because the question is, well, how do we go reach Syrians? It's one thing to educate the church, but how do we reach Syrians? With the gospel. How do we help the church of Syrians reach Syrians? To me, that's what's interesting. That's what's important. And I, I can't physically do both. So the question becomes, how do, I, how do I divide my labor? How do I invest my time, talent, and treasure to make sure that I don't have blood on my hands when I stand before Jesus? That if I know these prophecies, that judgments will fall on Israel, on Jordan, on Lebanon, on Syria, on Egypt, on Iraq. That we've done something to try to help the church reach the people in these countries. And that's where we started the Joshua Fund. uh, The ministry that we started, my wife and I, 11 years ago. And I want to just take the last few minutes of this, uh, maybe 5-10 minutes of this session... To share, give you a little update on what's happening with the Joshua Fund. We're going to take a break in a, in a little bit, and then we're going to go into Q&A. And then you can go prophecy, geopolitics, ministry, wherever you want, uh, within reason. And I, ha- I am from Washington originally, so I do reserve the right to say, no comment, next question. <laughs> so we'll get to that in a moment. The Joshua Fund. Now, the Joshua Fund is a nonprofit. It's a ministry. And what we tell people is, is what we mean. I mean, we're very clear to say it is designed to mobilize, educate Christians to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus, according to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, right? The Abrahamic covenant, right? So bless Israel. That's our passion. I'm Jewish. I want to bless Israel. I want to help Israel. I want to reach Israel. But the Bible also tells me to love my neighbor and my enemy. So to bless Israel and her neighbors and to do so in the name of Jesus. We're very clear in our mission statement that we do these things in the name of Jesus. We come from a perspective of faith. So if a person, Muslim or Jewish, doesn't want to be blessed by a person who believes in Jesus, then we just want to be upfront with that. We won't require a person to come to faith in Jesus to receive humanitarian relief or what have you. That's called unconditional love. But we want people to know where we're coming from. And we want it to do it in the context of uh, Abraham, uh, Abrahamic covenant, that, that God will bless those who bless Israel. And, and he wants to make Israel a blessing to the nations. And through Jesus, every family on the nation can be ble- in the world can be blessed. Okay, so that's the, that's the mission. Now, The way I think of the Joshua Fund is as a venture capital fund, okay? Now, a venture capital fund, what what I mean by that is that our ministry uh, identifies 
ministries in Israel and in five countries surrounding Israel. Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Egypt. The Palestinians and, and Israel. So that's, that's our footprint. That's our, our focus. And the question becomes, how do we identify ministries that are operating in those nations, starting with Israel? That's, we do about 80% of our work in Israel and the, and, and the, and the disputed territories, and about 20% in the neighbors. Okay? Yeah, there are other ministries that have many more resources and can do more in the neighbors, but we believe this is part of what we're supposed to do. So how do we, how do we train and deploy staff, sorry, train and deploy staff so that they begin to spend time? Our coffee budget is off the charts. If you want to invest in part of a ministry, invest in the coffee budget in the Joshua Fund because we send our team in to they drink a lot of coffee getting to know pastors, getting to know ministry leaders, trying to get a sense of what God's doing, and then asking the Lord all the time, Lord, where are you telling us to invest? Now, somebody might have a great ministry, and it might be theologically sound, and it might be fruitful, but the Lord may say no, but the Joshua Fund is not supposed to help. He's saving that for other people to be involved with. Okay, that's fine, but we need to know that, because if we get excited about a ministry— and we say, hey, here's, you know, $5,000 or $50,000 or whatever. And the Lord's like, hey, 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 whoa, I, I'm glad you got excited about that. I'm glad you vetted it, but did I say help? Well, Lord, but no, no, no. We, we have to be very careful. Now, we also have to be very careful on the vetting. Because, you know, I mean, you probably experience this in, in ministries all over the world. There are ministries that just know how to make the case. They know how to sell you. And it all sounds great. You get the brochure. Here's the projects. Here's the dollar amount. Wow, that's exciting. I want to get involved. But, you know, have have you taken the time to kick the tires, to get to know the staff, to get to know the finances, to get to know the theology, to try to understand what is really happening there? What really gets done? How do they operate? Where do they need encouragement? Maybe they don't need money. Maybe they need more prayer. Maybe there's somebody we know in a ministry around the world that, can provide some, some advice some, some, or, or some sort of technical resource. You know, maybe God is not saying money is how we're supposed to help. You know, give, me, give me an example. This is an example of, um, you know, let's say, so Jesus was going to feed the 5,000 uh, up in Galilee, and the disciples were like, I don't, you know, we don't have the money for that. That's ridiculous. How am I supposed to do that? We don't have the money. It would take us, you know, eight months of Oh, I know. We'll call the Joshua Fund. Beep, 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 beep. And they call us and we're like, hey, hey, we've got this big project. Jesus wants us to feed these people. Can you transfer money? Now, if, the, if we're an answer to the prayer, if, if the Lord has prepared us to be a help in that moment, wonderful. But if we send Peter money and the next thing, Peter has all this food and Jesus says, where did you get the food? He said, well, I, I call the Joshua Fund. It's like, whoa, what? I did, and, then he, and then Jesus is mad at us because he never told us to do it. He was trying to teach these believers to operate. He wanted to show them a miracle. And then we popped in $50,000. That's not helpful. So my point is, this has been a, 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 a very challenging journey to try to understand, one, what, what is happening on the ground? Two, who, what are the... And, 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 that's, and that's a lot of ground, and it's only, we're not dealing with a continent, we're dealing with a little country. And then, over time, you know, five others. And we've got a different staff who, 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 who work on that. 
But my point is, it has been a challenging process to try to understand what is happening on the ground and where is God telling us to be helpful. Now, you're dealing with imperfect information, but you, you keep getting to know people, you triangulate information, you pray, and you say, Lord, just tell us how to be helpful. And that's where we invest. And when, we, when you invest, you know, uh, in venture capitalism, you're hoping that you're helping provide additional resources to a little company that has a good product that if they had a little bit of help, they could, or a lot of help, they could really begin to move. Now, one of the things that I think is super important for us all to know is that extra money doesn't mean extra results. We all know that, but we get, we get tempted with our missions budgets to go, oh, that's so exciting. Let's do this. It might be helpful, but it might actually choke a little t- or swamp a little tiny ministry that's been operating on loaves and fishes that suddenly has resources they don't know how to handle. And that's just been challenging. I'm just saying that as a, as a, as a testimony, um, as honestly to say, you know, and we haven't always done it right. But we, one of the things we do is humanitarian relief. We have 14 different distribution centers that are local congregations, Jewish messianic congregations, but also increasingly uh, Arab congregations in Israel and, and, and in Jerusalem that, so the Joshua one doesn't become a brand in Israel. Our goal is not for people to ever hear about Joshua Fund. We're venture capitalists. We're helping with prayer and finances and assistance and encouragement. But the local congregation needs to be the hands and feet of Yeshua, right? They're the ones. So there's no Joshua Fund name or logo on the bags of food. There aren't any names or logos of, our, uh, of Joshua Fund on the truck that delivers these things or on the warehouse because that's not what we're trying to do. We're not trying to build a brand there. We'd be happy if most Israelis had no idea about Joshua Fund. Not because we're trying to be secretive, but we want the name that's known as Yeshua, right? And the local congregation that speaks Hebrew or speaks Russian or speaks Arabic or speaks the Ethiopian language, Amharic, that's, that's what we want them to know, the, the unbeliever to know them. So that's some of the things we do. Holocaust survivors, uh, widows, orphans, the poor. And uh, it's ex- that's an exciting ministry to just show this type of love and hope that it prompts a question eventually in the heart of some, a, a, a needy Israeli to eventually take one of the people aside in a local congregation and say, hey, why do the people who love Yeshua love me? Hey, most believer, most unbelievers in Israel, Jewish people, they have a natural resistance to Jesus. So sometimes you can't just go in and go tell them about Jesus. You need to show them the love of Jesus so they're curious about what is this. And I would liken it to cinnamon. Let's pretend you came from a jungle or something and you got to a mall here in Maryland or wherever you're from and, and you, you walk into a mall, you've never been to a mall and you smell a Cinnabon. And you, you don't even know what that is. But you're like, um, what is that? I like that. And you start wandering through the mall trying to find the Cinnabon. You don't know that that's what that is. And you get there and you're like, that... People are smelling the Holy Spirit. When the church is doing the love, when they're loving people in the power of the Holy Spirit, people who, who have a natural resistance to Jesus start going, what is that? I like that. 
Now, sometimes you get there and you say, oh, no, I will never eat cinnamon, but I would like something that smells like that. Well, no, you can't. No, that's, that is that smell. Like that, if you want that taste and smell, that's cinnamon. So, you know, if you want that, that's what you're going to, this is what you want. No, no, I don't want that. I want something that smells like that, but I don't want, I can't, I'm not eating cinnamon. No, I'm against cinnamon. Okay, I think you're following my point. People are like, no, I don't want Jesus, but I want a, a community of people that are kind of like you people. I want people to love me. I want, I like that, but I don't want Jesus. Okay, so this is how, you, how we have to operate. Now, pastors, how do we encourage pastors? One of the things we do, and one of the things that we get really excited about, is that every November we have a preach the word, shepherd the flock conference for almost all the pastors and ministry leaders in Israel. I mean, they're all invited. They can't all come, but okay. So, and, and for several days, we just, we, we, we pay for everything. They can come with their wives, get away from their life for a few days, kind of like this, and just take them through the word. We, uh, the first year we went through Titus, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Uh, the next year, I think, was um, James. Uh, we went through First uh, Thessalonians one year. We've gone through uh, Acts, uh, the first four chapters one year, five through eight this past year. We're just going through those scriptures. That is not a way that people t- study the word or teach the word mostly in Israel. But people have come to enjoy it. They don't feel like we're pushing that style on them, that approach. Well, they did at the beginning. But we said, no, look, this is just how we're going to do it. We feed them. We give them time to hang out with their wives, with their family, friends, to worship in Hebrew and in Arabic. This is a mixed group of Jews, Israeli Jews and, and, and Arab pastors. It is so special. And then we do the exact same conference for the Palestinian pastors and their wives in the West Bank. And you can imagine, you have a guy named Rosenberg, who's a Zionist, admittedly, and uh, you know, an evangelical, a dispensationalist, prophecy, the whole thing. That is not, I'm a sort of the poster child of people that a Palestinian pastor wouldn't want to spend time with. Okay. Work for Netanyahu once, whatever. You just, that, and yet we've tried to just humble ourselves and say, can we, is, would this be encouraging to you? Can we help you in this way? And, and building trust over time. It is, and, and how, you know, it's amazing. We're only talking, maybe 120 people came last time. That's about 95% of the pastors and ministry leaders and their wives and a few young people in, in the West Bank and Gaza. We're not talking about massive numbers of people. How do we love them? How do we invest in them in a way that will have long-term blessings? That we're not rushing in and trying to get them to do what we want them to do. How do we help them do what God wants them to do and to refresh them and to encourage them? Last thing I want to just mention um, is uh, the cyber warfare that's going on in Israel. Basically, in the Arab world, we are at a moment where, well, well, we're at a moment where more Muslims and more Jews are open to hearing the gospel than at any other time in human history. Okay? This is amazing. This is why it's time to be involved in investing in, in the kingdom work. God is using not only satellite television to reach Muslims, but he's using short-form videos with testimonies of Jewish people, either in English or in Hebrew, sharing how they came to faith in Jesus. And these videos are going viral. 
They are being watched uh, in, in a culture that you can't just walk up to a church and go, excuse me, I want to learn about Jesus, because there aren't any churches, hardly. There's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and i got to tell you, I love Jesus, and I, I don't know how to find him there. So if you've been there, you know. Um, but God is moving, and, and, and for the Joshua one, it's how do we invest in projects, in people that will help advance his kingdom. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Joel Rosenberg. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Joel's ministry by visiting joelrosenberg.com.